Good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church community. It's good to see you folks who are here. Welcome. Glad you joined us from your homes online this morning. Thanks to Tim and Melissa and Tony and Miles for leading us into worship. It's so encouraging to be called into worship. I show up intending to worship, actually wanting to worship, and still needing somebody to kind of call me forward into that place of, of praise. And so I'm so grateful um, for the role of the church, specifically in this case, our worship leaders. And thanks to, let's see, um, Lindsay Aha designed the stage for Advent and um, Jeff Jenkins put most of it together. So if you see those folks, um, make sure you pass on a sense of appreciation for them. It's beautiful up here. Glad you're here. Let's jump in together. I wanted to start by thanking um, Jeremiah Aha and Angela Henning for preaching the last couple Sundays. I uh, appreciated the break, and it's good to be receiving teaching in our church community. I really love and appreciate that. Sometimes when my family and I sit down for lunch or for dinner on Sundays after church, we'll talk about the morning together, and some of the questions that we'll ask are, you know, what did, what did you hear? What did you remember from the sermon? And we'll talk about that. Or sometimes it's, who did you see at church? And what conversations did you have at church? Or sometimes we ask this question. And this isn't a very good question. I don't actually recommend it. But it's just an easy question to ask and answer. Sometimes we say, what was your favorite part of church? And recently we asked, what was your favorite part of church? And my youngest sort of jokingly, sort of jokingly said, the end. <laughs> yeah. And, and my favorite part of Angela's sermon last week was actually the end. I, I really appreciated the way she wrapped up her sermon. If you missed it, what she did was she asked two questions at the end of the sermon. She had us first identify some of our major roles in life. So I wrote down husband and father and pastor. And then she said, choose one of those roles, those big roles that you play in the world, and then Consider these two questions. First question was, what is it that makes you weary? What makes you weary? What a great question. Not just what's hard or what don't you like. Important but different. What makes you weary? What wears you out as a husband? So I was asking these questions. I wrote down those things. Then I was like, so as a husband, what wears me out? Um, as a father, what, what, what becomes exhausting to me at some point? As a pastor, what, what are the things that make me start thinking about not being a pastor anymore, <laughs> right? What, what, is, what makes you weary? And then the second question that she asked is also important. She asked, where do you see hope? And so I responded to that question according to my primary roles within the context of my, of my environment, within the context of my roles. In other words, where do I see hope as a husband in my marriage, uh, where do I see hope as a dad within the context of my family, the relationships I have with my children? Where do I see hope as a pastor within our church community and within the greater church that I get to participate with at different times? What great questions. Against the backdrop of weariness, acknowledging that there are realities, there are situations, there are issues that come up, there are dynamics and situations that wear us out, that leave us tired and frustrated, given the fact that there are all these things that make us feel weary, where are we seeing hope, though? Okay, 
Where's the hope? This is not only a helpful question to ask personally, I think it's a really fascinating question to ask on the larger cultural level. So let's do that for a second. In other words, where in our shared cultural experience today is the hope? What specifically do you hear people talking about, do you witness people seeing that sparks hope in our minds, like in our imagination, or in our hearts, in our emotion? What are the conditions which, when experienced, prompt some people to hope? What happens in a culture like ours to suddenly awaken hope? What's going on behind the scenes when Whole segments of society, large groups of people suddenly seem to be more hopeful. Like, what's going, why do certain events like the Olympics seem to have this effect? The whole world seems to be a little bit more hopeful. Why do some political campaigns, uh, Barack Obama's first campaign comes to mind, evoke this energy in some that haven't been energized before, seem to bring a sense of hope to a a, a, a procedure that has for many become weary for quite a long time. Why do some sports seasons suddenly turn from low expectations to, hey, we might actually have a shot this year, you know? And then the whole energy changes around the experience. And then, why, what is it that, why do some people, when they see hope, when they recognize, when they have a spark of hope that, that lights up inside them, why do some people reach out for that and grab on to that? Whereas other people just sort of shrink back from that, just let it pass, or maybe even go darker and deeper into despair. We're entering the season of Advent. And it's the very familiar story of Jesus' birth, the coming of Jesus. That's the good news. Uh, that's the gospel. That is the ultimate reason for hope that's proclaimed by the writers of the Bible and is proclaimed by the church throughout the centuries. So today what I want to do is take a few thoughts, offer a few thoughts from the opening lines of Mark's gospel. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. We'll also put it on the screens. This is Mark's account of the life of Jesus. And what I want to invite us to focus on this morning is how people are drawn to hope. My message this morning simply stated is this. Hope is so attractive. Hope is so attractive. I want to invite us to think about how people are attracted to hope. Here's the scripture. The first few sentences of Mark's gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I 
the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, three big thoughts for today. I want to talk about the messenger. I want to talk about his message. And then I want to talk about its meaning. Okay, first thought. What is the role of a messenger? Here's this guy who, quote, appeared in the wilderness. It's like suddenly, bam, John's on the scene. Apparently out of nowhere, but he's attracting all kinds of attention. People are talking about him. People are asking questions about him. I'm sure people have opinions about him. His name's John. He's called the Baptist or the baptizer because that's what he's doing. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River, which is a river of massive historic significance in the memory of the people. Crossing the Jordan River had become synonymous in the collective imagination of the Jewish people with freedom, with salvation. This is, this is the story that they've lived, and they've crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Now, that happened more than a 1,000 years before Mark is writing this. Here's a little context. Jewish people are slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They escape slavery by crossing the Red Sea. Then they wander around in the desert for 40 years. And then they enter the promised land by crossing the Jordan River. This is the entrance into the promised land. Now, they entered more than 1,000 years earlier. And now suddenly there's this man who's drawing all kinds of attention by proclaiming a message, not just anywhere, but he's proclaiming it at the Jordan River. But what is the role of the messenger. I think it's probably two things. One, preparation to help people get ready for something, to say someone's coming or something's about to happen, you should get ready. You need to do what you need to do in order to prepare. And then another role of the messenger is, is to build anticipation, to call people to be aware of an event, a reality, a change, to invite people to focus their thoughts and their minds on something that is to come. We might say it like this, to invite people to look forward to something. That's what a messenger does. Invite people to look forward to something. It's probably both. It's probably anticipation and preparation. If what is to come is a bad thing, is a threat, then the messenger is the one that gets to issue the warning about the coming harm. And those who hear it should be concerned. They should be, they should be afraid. But if what is to come is a good thing, then the messenger is the one who gets to offer the invitation to hope, to take courage, to anticipate the joy that's coming, that's on its way. The classic image of a messenger is the guy who rides into town on a big tall horse with a flag and a shiny trumpet and blows the trumpet and says, hear ye, hear ye, and delivers the message, right? Maybe it's a new king is coming. And if the king is believed to be good, then the response to the message is joy and celebration. The people are filled with hopeful anticipation. The role of the messenger is to catalyze anticipation that then leads to action, preparation. It's not really about the messenger, right? There's that phrase, hey, don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger, right? I'm just delivering the news. But the messenger matters, I think. The messenger becomes part of the message. The messenger sets the tone. And all we're told about this messenger at the beginning of Mark's gospel is really weird stuff. He dresses weird. And he, eat, he eats weird things. 
the, the way that John is dressed evokes this memory of these Old Testament prophets. And here's what's weird about that. There has not been a recognized prophet in the land for 400 years. And so um, this is like thinking about some old-fashioned superhero in a comic book. Like you've heard of it, but you've never seen one in real life. This is an ancient legend kind of thing. You've heard the stories about the prophets, but you've never known a prophet. Nobody you know has ever known a prophet. So at this point, John the Baptist is more odd than amazing. Let's put it this way. If someone that you loved listened to a messenger like this guy, you would be concerned. If somebody that you loved made a major life decision based on a message from a messenger like this, some like maybe in our culture be some disheveled homeless person holding a cardboard sign, smoking a cigarette at the edge of town in Vegas or something. And you're like, you sold your house because who told you to, right? I mean, you would just be like very concerned about anybody doing anything significant based on anything said by a messenger like this. John the Baptist was awed. Even in his day, he was awed. Secondly, let's talk about the message. Let's talk about his message. Mark who is the narrator of the story, the one writing the story, tells us, he sets us up with two quotes from these famous Hebrew prophets who, speaking for God, said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Probably Malachi 3. And secondly, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, which is out of Isaiah 40. And then Mark connects, he draws a line between Isaiah's prophecy 800 years ago and this guy out by the river. This is what Mark writes. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. He's like, see the line? It's him. Isaiah said it 800 years ago, and it's him. And what is John's message? John the Baptist, he's preaching a, he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His message is repentance. He's calling people to turn around, to change the way they're living, to, to, to come before the Lord and repent of their sins. This is not a feel-good message. This is not like um, there's a stimulus check in your mailbox from the government. This is not COVID is over. This is not you get everything you've ever dreamed of. This is a hard message. This is a challenging message. This is somebody's coming you better get right with God. Okay, that's the message. And even though the messenger is really odd, and even though the message itself is really challenging, friends, this is what I want you to notice this morning. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem go out to see John and hear his message. They hike out in the wilderness to see this messenger and to hear his message. Something is going on out at the Jordan River. And it's not like you just go around the corner. This is a 20-mile hike from the center of Jerusalem to the Jordan River. 20 miles. This is several days' journey from some parts of the whole Judean countryside. Something is happening out there, and it's drawing people. Something is going on out there that is so attractive. Mark opens his gospel by saying, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. What is going on out there? 
What is moving people physically? What is inspiring people emotionally? What is changing people spiritually? I think some of it is spectacle, right? Like, let's take a road trip. Let's take a road trip to the place in Utah and try to find that stainless steel obelisk monolith, whatever. You can't even find a word for it. Let's find that thing that used to be there before somebody found it and ripped it out last week. Right? Let's take a road trip out to the Jordan River, see if we can find the dude who looks like an old prophet dressed in camel's hair. Some of it's probably spectacle. Some of it, I think, more significantly is disgust with the way it is. The draw of this messenger and of his message is to a large degree an indictment of the current condition of life in Jerusalem. Right? If things were going well, why are you going to walk 20 miles out to the river to hear this, this guy? Right? But they're not going well. They're not going well politically. The Jewish people are being controlled by the Roman government, being taxed more than 50%. It's not going well culturally. The Jewish people are not thriving. It's not going well religiously. Their so-called religious leaders are sellouts or hypocrites or both. The pastors aren't pastoring, and the leaders aren't leading. So you got a whole region that is journeying out into the wilderness as some kind of a collective expression of disgust with the way it is, as a protest against the current system. What is going on? Some are probably curious because of the spectacle, but more are probably protesting the current state of affairs. But most, friends, most of the attraction is due to the fact that what is being proclaimed in the desert is the message of hope, and that is so attractive. It's so attractive. If the draw was only a spectacle, the story would be some people go out on a road trip, take some pictures, and go home. If the draw was only an expression of disgust with the current system, then the march out to the river would be the main event. But they're not just going to see and hear, and they're not just marching to make a statement. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem are fully surrendering to this man's message. They're embracing it. Mark writes, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. They're being immersed in this message of hope. Hope is the undercurrent of these baptismal waters. Hope is the breeze that is refreshing those who have walked 20 miles from Jerusalem to Jordan. Curiosity might pique your interest and frustration might get you to move, but you don't buy in, okay? You don't get baptized unless you're hopeful, unless something has moved you to believe that something new is actually taking place, unless you begin to hope. John's message is confrontational. This is not a feel-good message. He's calling people to acknowledge their sins to recognize their need for forgiveness, to repent before the Lord. This is hard stuff. But people are responding in a remarkable way. Why is that? Because the movement pushing this message forward is hope, friends. The feeling of the crowd is hope. The attitude of the person being raised out of the waters of the Jordan is hope. This is not the end. This is the beginning of something new. This is not the end. This is the culmination of 
Centuries of expectation and anticipation and the culmination of the hope of the Messiah. It's coming. He's coming. The long-expected Messiah is coming. The messenger is odd. The message is challenging. But it's attracting people out to the wilderness like bees to flowers. Why is that? Because ultimately it's a message of hope. And hope is so attractive. It is so attractive. So we've looked at the messenger and we've considered the message. Finally, let's consider its meaning. I want you to notice this. This is so important. And this is so countercultural. So listen. John's voice blends judgment and mercy. Repentance and forgiveness. Truth and grace together. It's a hard reality. This is the way it is, he says. There's no sugarcoating. This is not a flimsy, feel-good, Hallmark card kind of spirituality. This is not lightweight nonsense that doesn't make any difference in, in real life. It's a hard reality, and it's profound grace. It's remarkable mercy. It's the I will go through a wall for that baby feeling that emerges or erupts in the heart of a man when he becomes a father for the first time. Not because of anything that the kid's done to deserve it. It's this profound affection, this, this moving love. John's declaration is a message of real love that engages with real life. And friends, that's hope. That's where hope comes from. And when a person who's just a little bit curious and just a little bit disgusted with the way it's been encounters a message that is this real, that is judgment and mercy, that is truth and grace, that is real love, but it's in the middle of real life, they start to hope. That's what happens. They might even become hopeful. This is not a message that, oh my gosh, everything is terrible. And it's not a message that, oh, everything's wonderful either. This is a message that in the midst of your weariness, there is reason to hope. Hope is alive even in this present darkness. Maybe your marriage is in a really difficult season. Maybe the challenges of parenting are more than you can handle. You lost your footing and your perspective like in April. Maybe your work, your role, the vocation, the thing that you're here to do has been so significantly impacted by the changes in our culture and its effects on you that you find yourself asking, like, what am I doing here? Like, what is the point of this? Maybe everything feels broken and impossible right now. And John the Baptist looks at you and goes, yep, that's right. It is. It's an absolute mess it's a dumpster fire. It's a chaotic disaster. John's not denying any of that. Do you, hear, do you hear that? John is not saying, oh, it's not that bad. John's like, it is that bad. It's a disaster. And he's saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
The hope that is to come and is now here. The message this morning, Isaiah's message, John the Baptist's message, the message that's been proclaimed by Christians to begin the new year for 2,000 years is there is hope in the midst of the mess. This is where it lives. His name is Jesus, and he came to set the captives free. Amen? Part of what makes hope so attractive is you know you need it. Part of what makes it so attractive is you know you need, you're thirsting for it. If you're good with the way it is, you don't walk out to the Jordan. Okay? If you're fine with the way it is, you just let hope pass by. Couldn't be bothered. But if you're weary, if you're hurting, if you are barely holding on, and you hear there's hope, like real hope, not make-believe, fairy tale town kind of hope. You hear there's real life, makes a difference in your life kind of hope. You put your shoes on, okay, because that is so attractive. And you start walking towards the Jordan because you are drawn to it, right? Because it is that bad. And you need something that is powerful enough that will engage reality. And it's hope. Hope is so attractive. Two more thoughts really quick. First, this is a message for us. You are the intended audience. Your name's on the package. This is for you. You are part of us. So this message is for you. This is a message for us. Second, this is a message for us to give. We are the ones that get to carry this message of hope. Now, we're the messengers of this message. We are the voice calling in the wilderness, this present wilderness of fear and isolation and canceled everything. We're the ones that need to proclaim this message of hope like John did. Okay? We're the ones that need to incarnate this message of hope like Jesus did. That means we embody it. We demonstrate it. We live it out. This message is for us, and this message is for us to give. This message is a message of hope, and it is so attractive. Real hope is so attractive for us and for us to be able to offer to a world that needs it, to our families that need it, our spouses who need it, our children who need it. Most mornings, friends, for the last two years, I've started my prayer time with Psalm 67. And I want to pray it together as we end. I'll just pray it for you. And the reason I've chosen this is because it's a beautiful prayer about hope that is both for us and for us to give. This is Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us 
and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity. You guide the nations on the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Amen. God, lead us to see and to embrace the hope of Christ and to carry it into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.